Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Hi, everyone. Today, I'll be talking to Andrew Taggart. Andrew is a practical philosopher who has been helping C-level executives and teams from companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter shift their perspective and ask some really fundamental questions. So welcome, Andrew. Very happy to have you on our show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Maybe you can start by telling us a bit about your journey, about your passions, and what brought you where you are today. Yeah, well, that's a great question. It's been a long journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was initially someone who was educated in research university, where I finished a PhD in 2009. The PhD was concerned with the nature of the good life in the modern world. And I subsequently and very quickly realized that I wasn't going to be going on to pursue an academic career. However, I had no idea what life outside of academic institutions was even remotely like. Mm -hmm. So without a clue, <laughs> I, I set off for New York City, where I moved in 2009. And for a couple of years, I was just pondering the question. And the question was, how could I be philosophical in the modern world? How could I actually be what I was writing about before? A friend of mine was kind enough to point me to something called the American Philosophical Practitioners Association which I hadn't heard of, and I'm sure your listeners haven't heard of, and I'm sure almost no one had heard of. No, I haven't. <laughs> no, exactly. It, it was a short training in which one learned to be a, a philosophical practitioner. And for me, it was, it was less about the training and more about the, the possibility that emerged therefrom. I, I began to ask myself, how would it be possible to do philosophy with people now that I know that it's something rather than just a figment of my own imagination? After that point, I began by doing philosophy with individuals, first of all in New York City, but then back in the day over Skype. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there was a long period in which I was basically learning my craft. What is philosophizing in this manner like? What sorts of things do we do together? What kinds of questions do we ask? Where do we go together? What do we seek together? And so on. Mm -hmm. And then if I may fast forward a ways, I would say that via my introductions to a number of different social entrepreneurship schools, such as Chaos Pilots, it's mm -hmm. a social entrepreneurship school that's based in Aarhus, Denmark. Well, I had a number of connections with these different schools. And so I began to experiment with philosophizing in groups and philosophizing in organizations in that way. But really, things start to change in 2017 when, for reasons I don't really know, there was a lot of media coverage of what I was doing. And at that time, then a number of Silicon Valley executives and tech firms came calling. That's a great introduction. But before we start talking about why companies should collaborate with philosophers, which is what I wanted to talk to you about today, maybe we can start with, with the very basics. Would you define what exactly is philosophy for you? And why would it be useful to business people first and specifically to innovators? It's notoriously difficult to define philosophy. And mm -hmm. in fact, <laughs> some would say that it's, it's a lost cause. But <laughs> I'll, I'll give you my own definition, which covers, I think, a range of cases that would go under the header of philosophizing. I think that philosophy of the kind that is of interest to me is concerned with our asking and seeking to answer the most basic questions of human existence. That's the first part of the definition. Mm -hmm. The second part suggests that we also want the lives we live to be the best answers we've come to so far. 
To put it that way is to suggest that we are asking fundamental questions. It's also to suggest that we are coming up with answers to fundamental questions. And it's lastly to suggest that the best answers we come up with are the ones that we actually live. Now, that definition is meant to imply that we have a number of misunderstandings of philosophy. We think that it's just about people asking big questions and then pondering them and nothing comes of it. Or, or we think that it's just about going nowhere yeah. while one contemplates the nature of reality or the nature of knowledge or whatever. But this could not be farther from the truth. In fact, philosophy really begins, as we know, in ancient Greece. And at that time, particularly as it moves into its Socratic moment, to, to be about asking questions of other human beings in a way that allows them to get at the truth of things. If I want to be virtuous, what is virtue? And how can I be virtuous? If I want to be wise, what is wisdom? And how can I be wise? So when I speak about practical philosophy, I'm really just trying to provide the necessary axial turns such that people come to understand once again that philosophy cannot be anything but practical mm -hmm. in the sense that it is concerned with how we individually and collectively live together. So when it comes to people like social entrepreneurs and social innovators, there's a certain kind of elective affinity or a certain resemblance between what they're doing and what philosophy is about. They're trying to create new things. Philosophy is trying to ask new questions. They are interested in getting beyond business as usual. Philosophy is interested in uncovering the assumptions which underlie business as usual. They are interested in a creative way of being in the world. Philosophy, rightly understood, is itself a creative way of being in the world. There ends up being a certain kind of nice dispositional connection between the two. You said something about practical philosophy. You call yourself a practical philosopher. Can you also maybe give examples of possible questions and answers in companies that philosophy might stimulate? It is true that philosophy is about asking very good and hard questions. Mm -hmm. You might say it's about coming up with the kinds of questions that other people might not think to ask. That is the starting point. But from there, we need to understand that you really wouldn't engage in philosophy if it were only ever about asking questions, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's like being around a small child for the moment who keeps asking why. <laughs> why is a great question, but if you ask why 15 times in a row, <laughs> it ceases to be a great question. <laughs> and, and it starts to feel as if the whole thing is rather frustrating and disappointing. So what I'm trying to do here is to suggest, first of all, in a broad sense, that if you're going to ask questions, every question is longing for an answer. If you ask me a question today, you are that question is longing for me to answer it, at least in a provisional way. So that much must be understood. As for some practical cases, well, <laughs> to begin with, no organization would be interested in talking with a philosopher unless the organization was kind of weird. <laughs> and, and a little bit switched on. That organization would start to realize that, if I may use a metaphor here, they've somehow been knocked off their horse and they've gone calling elsewhere and elsewhere wasn't perhaps good enough. Mm -hmm. So maybe they went to a coach and the coach was helping them with being successful, but somehow they realized that success defined in certain ways wasn't what they were after. So that was confusing because they thought the coach would provide them the answers they were seeking, but in fact, they were asking different questions. 
So maybe they would go to an organizational psychologist, but the organizational psychologist would help them to be functional. Yet perhaps they came to realize that they weren't after mere functionality, but perhaps after wisdom, if I may put it so grandly. Mm-hmm. So my joke is that philosophers tend to be the end of the line. <laughs> You've already gone calling elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You've tried out different approaches. They're not necessarily bad, but they're just not necessarily the ones that are answering the questions that you want answered. So here are two different cases that might put some flesh on the bones. Suppose you begin to realize that your, your company is struggling with burnout. That's a very practical matter. Employees mm-hmm. are burning out. In fact, we know in the United States in the healthcare industry, and we also know in the tech space, burnout has become a, a really important matter in as much as it's become rampant. It's very prevalent in the American healthcare system mm-hmm. among doctors yes. and nurses. This couldn't be any more practical, practical in the sense of having immediate impact on people and practical in the broader sense of being a question about how we live, how I live and how we live together. So the first thing that someone would probably want to do if one were a bit entrepreneurial is to come up with quote unquote solutions. So we have a culture that is very much primed for solution finding. And I'm suggesting that questions and answers are very, very different from problems and solutions. Mm-hmm. So maybe, uh, the executive or executive team might want to say, okay, let's move back to a four-day work week. Let's move from five days to four days. It's a very practical solution. But the trouble is they've, as of yet, not investigating and not yet begun to investigate the basic assumptions upon which burnout rests. And I would submit that we would need to investigate together a metaphysical claim. The metaphysical claim is that I am a worker and you are a worker and everyone else is a worker. And we need to, to parse that out. What does it mean to say that I'm a worker and you are a, work, you are a worker and everyone else here is a worker? It's only after we've gone through that investigation that we can begin to ask whether human beings actually aren't different from workers, even if it's the case that they do in fact work some of the time in some ways for certain reasons. Because that is the condition of possibility for understanding why certain things like turning off your cell phone after 5 p.m. or being in Germany and having no email sent on the weekend is only a, quote, solution without having understood why people keep hankering to look at their cell phones after 5 p.m., why people keep longing to look at their emails during the weekend. Isn't it because this day and age, work has become such a huge part of our identity? It's like when people meet each other, one of the first things they ask is, what do you do? When I say I am a worker, that is a claim about identity. And the question is not, where do you come from? Oh, I come from a certain area in England. The question is not, what kind of family do you come from? These are all different ways of answering the question, who are you? Mm-hmm. The question is not, what kind of religion are you involved in? If you are a Christian, that is an identity claim. Mm-hmm. The, the question is not, why are you here? <laughs> And in the broadest sense, it's a philosophical question. No, all, all questions seem to be of the form, who are you insofar rather as you are a worker? That would be one case. And, and I understand that we need to very slowly and methodically begin to unpack some of the assumptions surrounding the work identity. If we did that, then it might make sense at the end to dial back to a four-day work week, but not until then. If we don't actually philosophize, then we just get involved in solutions that themselves are actually ineffective because they've yet to actually examine the foundation upon which everything rests. One more case might be helpful, and this one's a little bit more fun. Harry Frankfurt, the American philosopher, wrote an essay some years ago, and that essay became a little book that was a bestseller in 2004, I believe. The book is called On Bullshit. His suggestion in that book 
way back when was that modern culture is really filled up with all kinds of bullshit. And I would submit that he was right. And I think that a number of modern organizations actually operate according to bullshit. <laughs> so we might ask, what is bullshit? And that would be a wonderful question. Here's my definition. Bullshit involves saying, it could also be doing, but let's go with saying, saying whatever is necessary to lead others to believe that you know what it is that you're talking about when you don't actually know what it is that you're talking about mm -hmm. in order to leave others with a favorable impression of you. I'll give you a simple example from seaweed I had yesterday. <laughs> so I happen to like seaweed. <laughs> Okay. And on the, on, on the wrapper, let's make this very vivid. On the wrapper, it says things like it's organic, and that's not a bullshit claim, nor is it lying necessarily. It's telling you where it's from and where it's imported. All that's fine. But let's look at the copy. The copy says, indulge in divine nourishment. <laughs> okay, that's bullshit. It's, not, it's neither truth nor is it false. It's not a lie. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's impression generation. It's impression mm -hmm. generation machine. And if you start looking for it, you find this all over the place. How people actually speak to one another is in terms of their impression management. Mm -hmm. But philosophy is concerned with what I would call love of truth. Therefore, an organization that has, quote, woken up to the very possibility that it's bullshitting itself in myriad ways would also be an organization that might be open to bringing in a philosopher who would help them to see, A, what bullshit is, so understood, B, where it arises, and see how the love of truth and the love of pursuing and speaking the truth could be the antidote they need in order to dissolve the bullshit. It's mm -hmm. like dissolving bullshit in a solvent. You don't have to get rid of it. You just need to create an entirely different culture in which it's no longer acceptable to be bullshitting one another. Mm -hmm. So that but means things like, well, let me just say, you know, when you go into a meeting and someone says, oh, I'm so grateful to be here and it's such a wonderful place to be. And I, I feel so happy today. And let's all end with appreciation. That's mostly bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's creative class bullshit. Rarely is it the case that someone actually feels gratitude and knows the difference. And gratitude is a beautiful, wonderful thing to feel but only when it's genuine. Let me circle back to something that you said earlier. You said questions and answers are very different than problems versus solution. Can you elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. Let's start with problems and solutions. And let's be very concrete <laughs> for fear that philosophy sounds too abstract. <laughs> mm -hmm. You might think to yourself, I feel within myself that there's a kind of wall. You have this metaphor of a wall. There's a wall between me and other people. I feel that don't know what it is, but the first thing you think is that it's bad. This wall is bad. The second thing you think is that you're afraid that the wall being here won't go away. And therefore, the third thing you think is that you have the desire for the wall to go away. You want to get rid of the wall that you believe to be within you. I think all that could be called a problem or thinking about it in terms of a problem. Problems are the sorts of things outside of mathematics, of course, that are such that we want to get rid of them. And the solution becomes the word we give to how we get rid of the things that we don't want ordinarily. There, there's another case in which problems have to do with optimization. But generally speaking, the claim is that the current state of affairs as it is, is not good enough. And in some respects, it's painful, undesirable, or bad. So that's the starting point for problem solution thinking. Questions and answers come in an entirely different field 
remember what it was like to be a child, <laughs> not the child who kept asking why <laughs> before, a different child. The child comes into the world and the world seems new or fresh to her. And so she comes to it with a kind of wonderment. Aristotle says that all human beings by nature desire to know. They desire to know because they, and we wonder, oh, what is going on here? What is all this about? So we can come back to the so-called wall. We could say, is it really a wall? Is that what it is? Or have I always believed it was a wall? What is beneath this thing that may or may not be a wall? What is surrounding this thing that may or may not be a wall? And after a while, the kind of investigation that I'm talking about, which is indeed fueled by a kind of curiosity, does invariably arrive at an answer. And the answer is something that, that puts the question to rest. It's like tucking the question in at night, right? You finally feel as if your mind can rest because things make sense to you. That is what an answer is like. Every, every beautiful answer in life has something like the obviousness of it after the fact. Maybe that will sound really cynical to a person like you, but that a lot of companies will want questions not to end up in answers, but in marketable products and services. Sure. I don't think that's cynical, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. But let's be clear, I'm not speaking with every tech firm in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with the weird ones, <laughs> the open-minded ones. Mm -hmm. People tend to ask me, how is it possible for a philosopher to be involved with people in business? And the answer is very easy. You're imagining 7 billion people in the world and imagining some kind of form of scaling mm -hmm. such that philosophy would need to be what is practiced by every business in the world. And I'm just trying to turn your attention to something that's very clear, namely that some companies are filled with really weird, interesting, wonderful people. Mm -hmm. And so they're not just concerned with efficiency, though they are concerned with efficiency. They're not just concerned with productivity, though they are concerned with productivity. They're not just concerned with well-being, though they are concerned with well-being. They start to be concerned with questions that go beyond success, performance, productivity, manageability. And what I'm trying to say is that philosophy always begins when you ascend the ladder beyond the ordinary cares and concerns of ordinary people. Once businesses are successful enough to be able to put food on the table for those they provide for, to provide a reasonable service or good, there's a time at which they might ask questions such as, whoa, what are we doing with all this? Or what kind of responsibilities do we have to the world? These are philosophical questions. And the tech space happens to be facing them right now because they are so incredibly powerful. They're having such impact on the lives that we lead. And so quickly are they changing the face of the modern world. And so wealthy are they that they cannot help but begin asking philosophical questions if they're being honest with themselves. So my reply to the question is, yes, there will be some companies that are just concerned with how good their sales are, mm -hmm. how good their marketing team is, and that's fine. But I happen to be speaking with the, the kinds of companies out there where people have already climbed a ladder, so to speak, and realize that their understandings and responsibilities may go well beyond the bounds of having a service or product that is capable of being bought and sold. What do you see as your mission inside a company? So what is the impact that you want to have? Have I understood it right that it's not so much about, of course, the, the, the solutions, but, but about a change of perspective? Yes. The first thing that I want, and I hope you'll enjoy this comment, is to shock them. <laughs> I mean, there are a number of wonderful thinkers who, who have suggested that human beings need to be shaken up pretty dramatically, but gently and ethically, 
so in order that their perspective can change. I think we know this from our own personal lives. Maybe it's the case that you were with someone and that person broke up with you completely out of the blue and it really shook you up. Being shaken up, I think, is the condition of possibility for philosophizing, being a bit rattled, bewildered. Then what I'm seeking, once people are noticeably awake, is for them to embody living wisdom. That sounds really quite mm-hmm. highfalutin, and maybe some people think that sounds like bullshit, <laughs> but it's, it's not meant to be. I would say that that has to do with right conduct that flows directly from right understanding. So wisdom is a really beautiful concept because it tries to take into consideration how we understand an organization, a world, the culture we have here, the ways that people relate to one another. There needs to be understanding in a pretty deep way. And then we want our conduct to actually flow from or to move directly from that understanding. So what I'm suggesting is that this is a bit broader than what people are calling decision-making or ethical leadership. No, I'm talking about wise leadership. Include, of course, being compassionate in a situation where compassion was based on understanding and it was the right thing to do. And yes, it would also include decision-making, for that would be a part of what it is to be wise. But being wiser is incredibly, you might say, ambitious undertaking in that it does really involve each of our actions being assessed according to whether or not they actually are flowing from our understanding of people, the situation, the context we find ourselves in, and perhaps even the world we find ourselves in. Interestingly enough, philosophy turns out to be rather epic in nature. It really does want human beings to evolve to the point of being wiser. It really does think, in my understanding, that we're living in a time, for example, of climate change, of ecocide, a time of technological disruption. Would it not be necessary for human beings to come to a greater state of development? That development would help them to become wiser. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a very ambitious goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about becoming wiser mm-hmm. and asking important questions, do you think that the rise of artificial intelligence and the questions that surface about human thought versus thinking machines and obviously also ethics, do you think that this makes philosophy more important than ever? Hmm. This, is like a, this is like a softball question you just fed me. <laughs> the answer is definitely, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think if you look at history for a moment or the history of ideas, you would find something very interesting, namely that human beings have almost always sought to understand ourselves in relationship to what is similar from us or to what is different from us. That's a very broad statement. So let me try to be a little more specific. If you look at the medieval period, for example, you find a great number of discussions centered on the nature of God and therefore on the nature of human beings. Are we like God or unlike God? What kinds of properties or attributes does God have? Benevolence, intelligence, and so on. Is our benevolence and intelligence like that of God's or different from God's? And you would also notice that human beings begin to distinguish themselves from other beings or creatures. And according to one understanding, there was a great chain of being from God at the top all the way down to vegetable life at the bottom. And human beings found themselves between (laughs) vegetable life and and God in terms of our specific properties. Above us were angels because angels were purely intelligent and therefore had no material bodies. The listener might think that this sounds rather esoteric, but we're going somewhere with this. As (laughs) As you turn to the modern world, 
you begin to find a few different developments. One is that you see the, the death of God, as Nietzsche called it, that is very slowly in some quarters and very quickly in other quarters, there's been the waning of God in public life, in private life, and even more recently in, in the United States, particularly in, in the life of churches, synagogues, and houses of worship. It's pretty amazing how quickly what Max Weber called the disenchantment of the world is occurring. Therefore, no longer do human beings compare ourselves with Deus, with God, with the divine. And so we look to the other side and ask ourselves, are we like or unlike nature? Are we like or unlike machines? For the longest time, we've, since kind of post-Descartes, we've thought that there's something special about us, which is our intelligence. And in this respect, we differ from nature. Nature can be understood mechanistically in, in, in terms, that is, of matter and motion and in terms of laws of nature. Therefore, we are unlike nature, the so-called natural world, and we are unlike machines. Okay, well, we've now entered a period when these distinctions are breaking down. We can no longer say we are like or unlike God, and increasingly we cannot say very easily that our intelligence is unique. A great deal of scientific research is showing that other sentient creatures are capable of certain forms of communication. And now we're entering a time when artificial intelligence during this third moment in its history is at least, according to some AI researchers, starting to, quote, behave as if it were intelligent in certain respects. Mm -hmm. No one yet is claiming that AI in the form of deep learning is actually intelligent. It doesn't have consciousness. It's not capable of understanding, et cetera, et cetera. But most people agree that artificial intelligence in the form of deep learning is actually behaving in certain respects as if it were intelligent. Maybe I can give your listeners a nice example here. My wife and I have a Roomba vacuum. <laughs> listeners may, may not know that it's, it's a robot vacuum. <laughs> and it's very interesting because we've gotten it and we, we immediately anthropomorphize it. We give it a name. Mm -hmm. And we have, and it's amazing because we start to look at it as if it were it had human or animal properties. It's moving around. We think, oh, how interesting how it's moving. Is it okay when it bumps into the wall? <laughs> you know, does it like what it's doing? Does it like vacuuming the floor? What I'm trying to get at here is that what it means to be human, how it is that we understand human beings singularly rather and collectively is changing. You might put it in Socratic language. We're getting to the point where we don't know who we are. We don't know what it is that makes us human. We don't know what this is all about. And what, what do you that mean is, we, we don't know who we are? You mean like we thought we were unique in our intelligence, but we no longer think this. So we used to measure our identity in intelligence and, and that's gone. Is that what you mean? That's what, exactly what I mean. I mean, we had, uh -huh. we had different answers. We were capable of speech. We are the beings capable of laughter. We no longer know where we stand. And I think this is the cause of a great deal of cultural anxiety. I don't think people are just concerned about losing their jobs to automated driverless cars. Mm -hmm. I think rather that people are concerned about losing identities. This identity crisis, could it also not be because some people are saying that people feel a bit lost for the moment because we do not have any big narratives anymore? That's right on the mark too. In 1979, I think... Jean-Francois Lertard writes a book called The Postmodern Condition. And wonderfully, people might not know this, that Lertard, who was a, an important French philosopher, was commissioned <laughs> by the Canadian government to write this report. And the report ended up being this book. Very abstract considerations were very much valued. In any case, Lertard suggests in that book 
that we're facing what he calls a crisis of meta narratives or the end of meta narratives. Meta narratives refer to these big stories that human mm-hmm. beings can tell themselves. One could be, I'm a Christian. And the reason I'm here is to seek salvation. Another one that you and I are familiar with, I'm sure, is a post-German and English Enlightenment narrative. And this one states that human beings are fully rational entities, all of whom are acting in order to bring about the kind of progress that could make for a kind of secular utopia. Now we don't say it quite that way, but people will still talk about progress. There are a number of people who still think that technological material progress continues to occur. And this is our reason for being. I think more recently, there's been a shift toward uh, social entrepreneurship. And this holds a little more modestly, but it's been still very important for a number of people. It is that we are secular entrepreneurial heroes. We're acting alone and together in such a way as to create maximum social impact (laughs) in order to bring about a better world. If we're being honest with ourselves, that narrative as a meta-narrative is no longer holding sway. Mm-hmm. And this is all, I think, very scary because without any sense of a meta-narrative, there is, you're quite right, a question about my identity. This is why I think philosophy is actually quite important today. It's very important today because philosophy has often come in various moments in history when one order is collapsing and another order has yet to arise. And when that happens, human beings ask questions. If I'm not Christian, who am I? If I'm not a worker, what am I? If I'm not going to believe that there's endless progress and I can see climate change around me, and I can see this is a limited earth, what am I doing in this organization? Consider one case that I think brings us back to bullshit. That is, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg's arguments in some of his long blog posts to the effect that Facebook is going to create a, quote, global community. <laughs> that's bullshit. It's an oxymoron. We're having globalization. That's true mm-hmm. in many ways. But try to imagine a global village, a global village or global community. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to imagine or conceive of. The only examples we have of communities are uh, small scale in nature. Mm -hmm. You have a network of people you know. You can't conceive of the possibility of being in a global community where you're communicating somehow or another with 7 billion people. Do you think that the fact that we have not found yet the big meta-narrative is precisely because of that? Because we have globalization Mm -hmm. and because there is globalization, the meta-narrative should maybe be global, but because people, like you said, People don't work that way. They work in smaller communities. There's different cultures. Do you think that that's why it's so hard for us to find a new meta-narrative? There are a few different ways of answering the question. The first answer is that I don't really know exactly. So I'm saying I don't know in order to <laughs> be consistent with myself and not, quote, speak bullshit here. <laughs> that's one little theme of our, of our conversation today. But let me try to provide some possible answers. One would be to say, with certain sociologists, human beings have tended to be tribal creatures, and therefore we're limited in terms of our cognitive and social capacities. So some would say that we can't really have more than 100 to 300, depending on the numbers of people we have some kind of relationship with. So that's the first. There may just be limits to the human species in terms of its cognitive, emotional, and social capacities. We can think about 7 billion people. We can think about the earth, we can think about the universe, we can think about the multiverse, but it doesn't fall that we can have some kind of intimate, affective relationship with all the things I just mentioned. So that's one response. Therefore, that would be to say that it's a completely impossible Mm -hmm. project. Another response would be to go with a kind of groovy, (laughs) groovy thinker, Ken Wilber, a groovy holistic thinker. 
Ken Wilber, who's a developmental thinker, would suggest, I think, that what we need to do is evolve in terms of our consciousness to a point at which we were able, not just thinkingly, but also feelingly, to countenance the very possibility that there are 7 billion people and we could we have some kind of relationship with all of them. After all, the ancient Stoics thought about the world in terms of a cosmopolis. They thought that one had duties on behalf of all human beings. So there have been people who have been trying to suggest that human beings are capable, if only we quote-unquote evolve to a certain point of consciousness, to actually engage in some kind of truly global, truly ethical, truly political project. I'm not really sure where I stand. I actually do vacillate back and forth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think it's pretty clear to me that I only have so many friends. I only have so many relationships. There are only so many people at companies I touch, and that's not really scalable, as it were. There's an intimacy that's not scalable. Sometimes I think that given the fact that we have, as I mentioned, climate change, given the fact that we have basically the crisis of legitimacy when it comes to nation states as a dominant form of governance, we may need to think about what would be a different political model entirely. And this is where we dovetail with entrepreneurs and innovators. Do we need different political models? Do we need different ecological models? And do we need a different model of consciousness? So that's my long answer. And the short of it is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but so um, I'm going to take a, a slightly different turn here. But what I really want to know from you too is which philosophers and, and, and philosophy branches could really inspire people that are responsible for innovation and business transformation? So which people should they know about and which maybe books should they read? One philosopher that's very important today, I do think, is Aristotle. In his book, The Nicomachean Ethics, okay. he argues that we should understand people in terms of teloi. Well, I'll tell your listeners what that means. A, a mm -hmm. telos is the word that could be translated as that for the sake of which something is. The telos of a knife is to cut. I would say the telos of a relationship is to love. A telos of a romantic relationship is to love. This is important because a telos is actually a more robust concept than a, quote, goal, quote, a mission or a vision. Because all those terms assume that what we're up to is different from where we are now. It assumes that there's a means ends or mean goal structure. That is not what Aristotle assumes. If the telos of philosophy is living wisdom, then one does it here and now. That sounds a little bit Zen and I'll get around to Zen perhaps shortly. Mm -hmm. So the question the businesses could ask would be, wow, what would it be like to actually not speak about our core values, right? And put them on our website and have this word compassion over there or, or, or transparency. No, what would it actually mean to have telos that's strong enough that it actually percolates and saturates our very actions, our very thoughts, our very behaviors here and now. That's what I think is really quite beautiful about mm -hmm. Aristotle's view of a telos. So I think we've come almost at the end of our conversation, but the books that you mentioned before are maybe a good bridge to my final question. Where do you find your own inspiration? Today, what really inspires me, apart from meditation, is my wife. My wife is an artist. Oh. She's a visual artist. <laughs> And I'm just moved to see how her artworks have evolved over the course of time. And I just feel very blessed and grateful that I'm able to actually view her artworks 
and take part in artistic development? This is not just a sentimental answer for the listeners. <laughs> it's also one that I really believe in. Uh-huh. I, I think that she's a wonderful inspiration for me. Okay. So I want to include her in this program, therefore. That's good. That's really good, Andrew. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the next Works Innovation Talks, Andrew. It was wonderful to talk to you, and that's no bullshit. <laughs> ah, it was lovely to be here. And I mean that with the utmost earnestness. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.